Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series. We began some time ago, and we've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And so if you brought your Bibles with you, if you open them to Romans chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 9 through 26 this morning, a sermon I'm calling, calling from slavery to freedom. When the Emancipation Proclamation was taken to President Abraham Lincoln by, by Secretary uh, William Seward, it was said that President Lincoln grabbed the pen, he dipped it in the ink, and he took it to the, the, the proclamation. He was getting ready to sign his name, and he stopped. And he moved his hand away from the parchment, he dropped the pen. He paused for a few minutes, and he went back. He picked up the pen, moved it to the, the place where he was supposed to sign again, and the same thing happened. And he moved his hand back, and he dropped the pen. He t- turned to Secretary Seward and says, My hand has been trembling since 9 o'clock this morning. He said, My right arm is nearly numb. He says, If, if my name ever goes into history, it'll be for this act. If my hand is trembling when I sign my my name, historians will look at this and say, he hesitated. He said, and with that, President Lincoln picked up the pen, moved to the area of the proclamation, and signed very distinctly, Abraham Lincoln. And with that, the whole world knows. Then it says he looked up from the table and said, that'll do. And with that, four million Americans gained their freedom. Today, we are talking about freedom. You know, I'm talking about freedom, but most mankind, they don't know that they are slaves. They're slaves to sin. But I want every single human being to know that I've been dedicated my life to doing this, to preach that there is freedom from sins only found in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the Exodus story? In the Exodus, God's chosen people were slaves in Egypt for four centuries. And through a man named Moses and ten plagues, God delivered his people. And the Bible tells us he did this very distinctly so they'd be free. Not only be free physically, but they'd be free to worship. They'd be free to worship the one true God. And God offers the same freedom today. Did God's chosen people just openly embrace this freedom that God gave them? No, they didn't. In fact, there was a time where they just longed for the good old days when they had leeks and onions back in slavery. Yeah, they had leeks and onions, but they also had a slave master's whip at their back to keep them in line. There's going to be a word we're going to spend a lot of time today on, and that is the word, and it's found in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. It is the word redemption. There's a lot of biblical words that maybe I'd point to as my favorite biblical word. Redemption is towards the top of the list. The word redemption, it means to set a prisoner free. Read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It says, in him, meaning Jesus, in Jesus we have the redemption, there's that word, through his blood. We don't talk a lot about blood in this church, but we're going to be talking about it today. In him we have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In this section in Romans chapter 3, we're going to read about both guilt and freedom. The, the scene that when I read Romans chapter 3, it almost reads like a courtroom scene. The charges have been read, and soon the judge will enter into a sentence soon because very clearly, 
the prisoner is guilty, right? There's no getting out of this one. Okay, I don't care if Perry Mason is your attorney. There's no getting out of this one. You are guilty. But before the guilty verdict can be pronounced, out of the, wor- out of the mouth of the judge comes the words, they're free. The individual's bewildered. How can this be? I'm very clearly guilty. How am I guilty? But now I have my liberty. That's what we're talking about today. How a guilty prisoner can go free. And with that, let's pick up our Bibles. And let's read in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. The word of God says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged them all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside together and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is like an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace is have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you don't know this, up until this point, the, 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 the apostle Paul has been proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that everyone's accountable to God. Everybody, he proved in Romans chapter 1 that the, the heathen, the atheist that says there is no God, he's proven that they know there's a God and therefore they're accountable to him. In Romans chapter 2, Paul proved that the religious people, he told them that your religion saves no one. No one is saved by keeping the law because nobody keeps the law. And then we get to Romans chapter 3, Paul let all the very religious Jews know, but there is an advantage to being a Jew He said, because you have the oracles of God, you have the Old Testament, there is advantages to being a Jew because you have heard the very voice of God. So by the time that we get to where we just read, it's like Paul is that prosecuting attorney and he's gathering all this evidence to make his closing statement. Paul has read a 14-count indictment against all of humanity. How? By quoting scripture. Paul has quoted um, the the prophets. He's quoted the Psalms. He he went to Isaiah. There's 14 different quotes of, of Old Testament scripture that Paul piles into one closing argument. It's like Paul comes into the courtroom and he he was just boxes and boxes of evidence. And he quotes scripture after scripture after scripture to prove one thing, that we're all guilty That's what he said. Now, we're not going to go through each one. I think you're going to get the drift, but look at what he says. Go back to Romans 3, verse 9. Paul says, what then? Opening question, or he makes a a question, and he says, what then? It could be translated as, what should we conclude then? He's making a summary statement. Paul is saying, hey, I I wrote Romans chapter 1, and I let the heathen know that you're very accountable to God, and you know it. I wrote Romans chapter 2 to address the self-righteous religious hypocrites. And here's the conclusion. 
we're guilty. All of us, we are very, very guilty. We are messed up. That's what Paul is trying to say. That's Paul's point. Guilty. And so then he asks, what then? What then? We'll go to verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together and they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Hey, Paul, what are you trying to say? Like, really? (laughs) His point is very clear. That we are not good people. That our good works do not save us. Maybe you've had somebody come to your door and they've knocked on your door and they want to tell you this new and improved gospel message. Have you ever heard that? And it goes something like this. So they'll say, well, after we've done all that we can do, we can only hope that Father God will let us into heaven because our good works were enough. And with that, I'm like, can you read? Have you read Romans chapter 3? Because if that's what you're going to hang your hat on, so to speak, for your eternal salvation, on judgment day, I have to think you're going to be solely disappointed. Why? Because to quote the apostle Paul, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good. How many? Not even one. That's what Paul says. The word worthless in verse 12, it could be translated as unprofitable in your Bibles. So this is what Paul is saying. You could spend every waking moment of your life trying to be good, and he says it's worthless. It's all for nothing. Picture living your whole life thinking I'm going to be a good person, and then I'm going to get to heaven, and God says your life was worthless. Does that sting? Jump down to verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So here's the question. Just make sure you're tracking where I'm going. How many people are righteous? None, zero, zilch, nada, right? Okay, who's going to be held accountable? All of us. All of us, every single person is going to be held accountable to God. And if you're not following what I'm saying, I'm just trying to say what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying is something that the vast majority of our world rejects. And the vast majority of our world says, well, I'm a good person, right? I'm good. You see, people say that because what they're doing is they're comparing to themselves to somebody who's worse than they are, right? People will say, well, hey, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. Like, that's the standard. God said, be better than Hitler and I'll let you into heaven. I don't think so. Hey, that's a pretty low bar. How come nobody ever compares himself to like a great person? Nobody ever compares himself to the person who's trying to eradicate childhood cancer. No one compares himself to the person that goes on the mission field and gives their life to try to end hunger, right? We pick the worst person and we compare ourselves to that person. You see, the problem is we've got the wrong standard. Many years ago, uh, when I was a single man, I was given a lady's diamond engagement ring. And I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with a lady's diamond? One of was, I've got this diamond. I had it for a long time. And then I met my bride-to-be and I wanted to propose to her. 
I didn't want to use that diamond. I'm like, that just doesn't feel right. So I, I need to do something with it. So I, I found a jeweler, and, and he was willing to work with me, and I took him this diamond. And I said, this diamond, because uh, somebody told me it's worth a lot. It's flawless. It's clarity. It's perfect. This is a very valuable diamond. This guy said, okay. This guy knew a lot more about diamonds than I did. And he took my diamond, and right there in front of me, he took these little tools, and he pried the prongs apart, and he took the diamond out, and he grabbed these tweezers, and he got this little monocle, and he looked at it and said, huh, and handed it to me. Now, I know nothing about diamonds, but I grabbed the tweezers, I grabbed the monocle, and I go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I can see this is not the perfect diamond. I can see with my eye. The, the, the flaws in that diamond. I was like, oh, maybe this diamond's not as valuable as I thought it was. And then what kind of sealed the deal? He took a perfectly white piece of paper and he put, set it down and he set my diamond on the white piece of paper. You know what I could see? It's not as clear as I thought it was. You see, the problem was I had the wrong standard. When you put my diamond next to a perfectly white piece of paper, I could see it wasn't as nice as I thought it was. In case you're wondering, that's not the diamond my wife's wearing on the finger right now. (laughs) I was like, she deserves much better than this. I got her a completely different diamond. But people do this. When we take all our nasty, terrible flaws and we go, oh, it's so great, but we've got the wrong standard. What we need is we need to compare our lives next to God's perfect law. So, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to compare somebody to God's holy, perfect law. So here's how it goes. Have you ever, even one time, used God's name as a cuss word? One time. Have you lied? One time. Have you ever been so angry you wanted to strangle somebody? Yeah, I've been there. Have you done that one time? How about this? Have you had an immoral thought? It's like, oh, Pastor John, you need to stop because this is getting deep in here. I know, right? Well, instead of me using any of you, I'm going to point the finger back to me. Today, I am 17,447 days old. That sounds old when you say it like that, doesn't it? My mom's probably behind line. You have a son that is 17,447 days old, right? Well, let's pretend this is a leap of faith. Just pretend I've only sinned 10 times a day. I know there's upward gusts of several hundreds, if not thousands. But let's pretend like it was only 10. <laughs> now we take that high school algebra that I learned, and you take 10 times 17,447, what do you get? Let's just round up. 175,000. I have sinned 175,000 times. Probably several million, but let's pretend it's only 175. I'm going to go stand before God and go, yeah, God, I've only sinned 175,000 times. Is God going to let me into heaven? Yeah, we're all silent, right? Because you're right where I'm at. I'm not looking like a good person, am I? We are flawed. We are flawed to the deepest degree. And you know what? We can see it. That's why we compared ourselves with somebody who's even worse than we. Someone that, that has killed, murdered six million Jews and go, I'm a pretty good person. You probably don't know this, but so now you will. One of the most frequently searched questions on the internet is how to get rid of guilt. Well, I know how to. You, 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 give your, you repent and turn to Jesus. That's how you get rid of your guilt. Back when God made man and woman, he made them both naked and unashamed. 
That's the new redneck version. Naked and unashamed. And they were in the the garden, and it was wonderful, and it was great. That's Genesis chapter 2. You know what comes after Genesis chapter 2? Nobody? Genesis chapter 3, thank you, yeah. And that's when the fall happened. Adam was disobedient, and it's been a downhill slide ever since, right? Really quick, mankind fell from God's perfection, and he made us in. Because we were made in God's image. Let me tell you, God's image ain't looking so good in us anymore. And then the assumption that we come up with is, I'm basically good. But then deep down, we have this gnawing sense of guilt and shame. Why? Because we're guilty. And our guilt, it has to be dealt with. And our guilt, it is very painful, right? Did you know that men and women both will do anything not to feel pain? We really will. We don't like pain. We move away from pain. And we will actually move into some very harmful stuff to not feel pain. Last year, I was on the, our team that went to Mexico City. And we were helping with a church plant. While we were there, my back went out. And I'm like this. I can barely walk. It hurts so bad. And then on top of that, I got a, let's call it a gastrointestinal issue. Vicky Moss. I hurt bad. I mean, real bad. I was like, just kill me now, God. Well, I had some people like Vicky who loved me. And they're like, hey, Pastor John, they came, take this is blah, blah. And it's going to help with your back. You know what I did? I took it. And then someone else came, hey, Pastor John, this is blah, blah. It's going to help with your gut. And I took it. And that happened like five or six times. Is there going to be a farm, uh, an interaction with the drugs? I don't care. Because if somebody came up and said, hey, this is rat poison, it's going to help you. It would have gone down the hatch. Let's, let's take it, right? I did that because I hurt so bad. I just didn't want to hurt anymore. I'm telling you this because I think that's what the vast majority of our world has done. They're addressing a pain problem with, with everything under the sun rather than the one who is beyond the sun. People will do all sorts of unspeakable acts to try to find emotional pain management, and it's all sin. And our sin, it makes us unfit for God because I'm hurting, and someone says, oh, hey, you know, here's some alcohol. It's going to make you feel better. Hey, here's some drugs. It's going to make you feel better. Hey, you know what you need? You need a lot of sex. It's going to make you feel better. Hey, a lot of homosexual sex. It's going to make you feel better. It's all sin, and it's killing us. So here's the deal. You know why people feel guilty? Because we are guilty. That's why. And and our guilt has to be dealt with on a deeper level. That's the problem. The indictment? Guilty. And guess what? It's universal. Everybody's guilty. Jump to Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, So how many have fallen short? All, that's right, of what? God's glory. God's glory. You see, the standard is not Hitler. The standard is God's glory, God's perfection. That's what we're, we're being compared to. And guess what? Every single one of us falls short. Maybe you've heard this illustration. Maybe you haven't, but you're about to now. What if we all got together and we decided we were going to broad jump the Grand Canyon? What's going to happen? We're all going to come up short, right? In its most narrow point, the the, the Grand Canyon is 600 yards wide. 
at its widest 18 miles. But let's say we all get together and we all go to the Grand Canyon. We all stand and we go one, two, and we all jump. Well, maybe I can make it about as far as that chair. And maybe some of you will make even further. You know, some of you are probably going to land right there in a puddle. But you know what's universal? We're all going to come up short, right? Well, that's what, how it is with our sin. The standard is God's glory. And we've all fallen short. Every single human being, whether you're religious, non-religious, hypocritical, whatever, we've all fallen short of God's glory. And that brings us to the next question. Where does that leave us? If we're all falling short of God's glory, where does that leave us? Look in verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight. How many works can we do to be justified? None. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, when a a court of law meets and there is a defendant, and the defendant is very clearly guilty, like all the evidence, like there's no getting out of this one. You are guilty. They're going to be given the opportunity to speak. But usually when the the evidence is overwhelming, the defendant is going to stay silent. Because after all, what's the point? Anything that comes out of your mouth is only going to add to your sentence, right? Well, if we turned in our Bibles and went to the last, the last book of our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 8, it says God, he judged in heaven and then all of heaven was silent for an hour and a half. Everyone was rendered speechless for 90 minutes. You ever talk to somebody and say, hey, when I get to heaven, I got a few questions for God. No, you don't. No, you will not. You know what you're going to do? You're going to stand there and you're not going to say a word. Why? Because you're guilty. And I, so I said earlier in, in this series, I said there's four, I see four sections in the book of Romans. First section is the wrath of God. And that is chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter three, verse 20. <clears throat> That's where we just left off. You know what we did? We finished the first chap- the first section. We, we finished kind of the, the hard stuff, and now we finally made it to the... Anybody ready for some good stuff? I don't know about you, but I am. I've been... Because I spend like 20 hours a week pouring and like, holy smokes, Paul, this is a dark path. You've been taking us down. Look what happens. Jump to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me tell you, I love verse 21. What's the first two words? It says, but now. But now after this long, dark, heavy road, Paul's been taking us down. You're sinners. You're decrepit. It's horrible. But God... One of my favorite preachers is a man by the name of Dr. Fred Luter. I think my, mom, my wife knows where I'm going with this. Um, I've got to, if you don't know Dr. Fred, he is the pastor at Franklin Avenue Baptist Church in Nolens, Louisiana. Oh, he can preach. He just yells and screams. I love it. Uh, I used to try to preach like him, and then I watched it. I'm like, no, nope, you can't preach like Dr. Fred. So anyways, Dr. Fred, at this conference I went to, he talked about how he loves the big butts of the Bible, 
How he loves a big butt and he cannot lie. That's what Dr. Fred said, okay? But anyways, he said, I love the big butts of the Bible because it undoes what came before it. You know, for example, if you come up to me after service and go, Pastor John, I love that sermon, but you just undid what you were about to tell you said, right? Okay, if I go up to my wife and I go, oh, sweetie, baby, chicken dumpling, I love the way you look, but I'm in trouble, right? Don't say that because I've undone what I've just said. Well, I'm saying this because Paul has spent two and a half chapters telling us how awful, rotten, decrepit, wicked, vile, unrighteous we are. And now he says, but God, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you hear it? Paul is is, is undoing what was said before. If we were to go back into what he introduced, look, like go back into Romans chapter 1, look at verse 16. Paul says, uh, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul introduced that. He introduced that in in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then look what he says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then so from verse 19 all the way to Romans 3, 20, it has been dark. And just how, oh, it's just heavy. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, he, he like brings us back to the righteousness of God. And he, and he says, he says, look, go back to it again. I just love it so much. Verse 20 says, but now the righteousness of God. So it's like this has been this dark journey and all of a sudden a window opens and Paul opens the shades and the light comes in. And so he's talking about the righteousness of God. What does the righteousness of God mean? Well, he's not talking about God's own personal righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness that God gives to us. And he gives it as a gift. Do you remember what the book of Romans is about? It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Or how God makes bad men and women good, right? You see, this is so important because it's like we're clothed in all this disgusting, filth sin. So I have my clothes and they're just disgusting and horrible and rotten. You know what I don't need to do? Just stick a patch on my old nasty clothes. Is that going to do it? No. I need a new set of clothes. I need a new righteousness. The problem is I can't get it. It has to be given to me. And it's it's given to me as a gift. The prophet Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So what God does is he gives me his righteousness. So Paul has been declaring that all of mankind is horrible and awful and rotten for two and a half chapters. All of God's law and the prophets, meaning the the Bible, is basically saying we are tore up from the floor up. Okay? And then Paul says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. He's saying, you know what? The law of God, the Ten Commandments, it lets you know that you're a sinner. You can't keep the Ten Commandments is to tell you that you are messed up. And then Paul announces God's gift. I've heard the Old Testament referred to as old doom and gloom, 
Oh, you're preaching through the Old Testament, pastor. Oh, that's doom and gloom. If that's how your view of the Old Testament, you haven't read the Old Testament. Did you know the Old Testament says the salvation is a gift by faith? Read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. The word of God says, I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbors as each his brother saying, I know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. That sounds like New Testament stuff to me, but there the prophet Jeremiah is preaching all the way back in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 53 verse 6. It says, For we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways. And the Lord has laid on him, that him is Jesus. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You see, the entire Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, it points to Jesus that's to come. So question, did anybody bring a lamb or bull here this morning in the back of their pickup truck to be slaughtered? I see no hands. Okay, if you did, what we would do would bring that lamb, that bull, we bring it up here and that we'd lay our hands on it and we would, we would confess our sins. We would pronounce our sins on the animal and then, I guess I'm the pastor, I gotta do it, pull out a knife and I would kill the animal, Right? At that point, you would know that your righteousness is not because of you. All of this looked forward to the time when those sacrifices would stop because Jesus. How is the righteousness of God available? Look at verse 21 of Romans chapter, or 22 of Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Right? He didn't say for all who work real hard. He didn't say for all that, that are good boys and girls. No, he says for all that believe. And just on a side note, if anybody says, well, I believe in God, well, that's great. So do the demons. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There was a day when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I am the way the truth and life. And no one comes to the Father but my me. Jesus is the only way. Our, our guilt, it's all universal. You have guilt, I have guilt. We call that we are guilty. But God's gift is available to all who believe. Keep reading, look in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier is the one who has faith in Jesus I don't understand how anybody could read that and go, you know what, I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. I'm saved by this act that I do, and that act makes me a good person. I hear that, I'm like, can you read? That's not what Paul said. People have been asking this question for centuries. It's a deeply flawed question, but it doesn't stop people from asking it. And the question goes, how can a loving God send a good person to hell? Question's messed up. 
Because there is no good people. The right question is, how can a holy God get a sinful man into heaven? We're guilty, and we need to be justified. God has to do something. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. Only God can do it. Because you and I, we stand guilty, condemned. Guilty is charged. So God has to do something with my guilt. How is God going to be a just God? Because God is a just God. And if God is a just just God, he has to do something with the crimes, right? He can't just say, oh, you're free to go because we're guilty. Would that work with, with, a, with a judge in our court? Oh, yeah, I murdered 175,000 people. But, uh, uh, yeah, you're free to go. That's not going to work, right? A good judge wouldn't do that. God has to justify it. How? The key word is grace. Now, you need to know what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. I'm not a big fan of the message translation of the Bible, but they use a phrase. They say sheer generosity. I like that. Sheer generosity. God is filled with sheer generosity. That's grace. But now I want to show you how grace works. There's three words that that are in that text we just read that's really going to help you get the picture of grace. The first word is justify or justification. You see in verse 24, hopefully you're the one that's underlining your Bible like a mad person. Yeah, 24, uh, verse 24 has the word being justified. The term justification, it shows up 30 times in our New Testament. 15 of the 30 is just in the book of Romans, right? Justification is a legal term. If you were brought into a courtroom and all the evidence is given, or the lack thereof, it's all piled up, the the judge would read one or two verdicts. He would either say guilty or condemned, or he would say justified. If someone is justified, it means as if the crime never occurred. In a sense, what is God is saying is, I pronounce you a righteous man or righteous woman, and then I'm going to treat you as if you never sinned. Get it? Justified? Just as if I never sinned? How is it that God can treat us like we never sinned? And very clearly we sinned. There's no doubt I have sinned. It's because you have to be covered in the blood. Blood. That's what weird churches talk about. Let's not talk about blood. We have to because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Because remember the sacrificial system I talked about? Bringing the lamb or bull, slitting it. Well, that's what has to be done here because Christ's righteousness, it covers our unrighteousness. He covers our disobedience with his obedience. He shadows our death and his death, and so then the wrath of God passes over us. That's what Paul is saying. There's another word I want to spotlight here in verse 24, and it's the word gift. Maybe your Bible says Freely. You know what that means? It means just what you think it means. It means without cause. There is no reason God should do this. There, there is no, in fact, the opposite is true. God should smoke every single, he should zap us the first time we sin, but yet he doesn't. Instead of zapping us, he gives us a gift. And this gift, it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. You can't provide it. You can't earn it. Because the cause is in Jesus. God can declare you righteous 
because of what Jesus has done. Have you ever heard the um, term, somebody says grace is an an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense? That's grace. There's one more, there's another term. The term is still in verse 24, and it's the word redemption. I talked about it at the the beginning of this, this message. The word redemption, that's a word that comes from the slave market. The word redemption means to set somebody free by paying the price. It's not like the the price was just wiped away. Somebody paid for it, okay? So this is what would happen. A person would go to the slave market. There's the slaves. There's a price, and they would pay it. Why? For the purpose of setting the slave free. But in this case, the price wasn't, wasn't paid. It went above and beyond the asking price. The price is X, and the price that was paid is X plus Y. Do you know what that's saying? That the purchaser values what's being purchased. You know what that means to you and me? It means that you are so precious to God that when you stood on that slave market, God the Father says, I'm paying above and beyond the asking price. They only cost this much. I'm paying way more. It means God sees you as valuable. When you were a sinner, God saw you as valuable and he sent Jesus Christ to pay the redemption price above and beyond. That's what that means. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the sinful people so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price with his own blood above and beyond the asking price so the prisoner could go free. One more word I want to spend time on. It's the word propitiation. Jump to verse 25 of Romans chapter 3. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the redemption to, to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word propitiation, that's not a word we use a lot in church today. It's a big word that has even bigger, bigger meaning. Um, maybe your Bible translation says sacrifice of atonement. Not a big fan of the Message Bible. I'm not also a big fan of the New Living, because it's just kind of waters. But there's a word the New Living uses here, and I really like it. I think they hit a home run. The New Living translation says sacrifice for sins. The word propitiation, the basic idea means appeasement. It means satisfaction. God's wrath is appeased. God's wrath is satisfied with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. With that one act of punishment that God the Father put on his son, he can set us prisoners free. You're free. You have liberty. That word propitiate, it's only used a couple times in the New Testament. But actually that word's used a lot more in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, um, years later it was translated to Greek. And we call that the Greek Septuagint. If you've ever heard that phrase, you're like, what's that talking about? It's the Old Testament translated from Hebrew to Greek. Well, in the Greek Septuagint, the word is mercy seat. 
If you've been going to church for a long time, you've probably heard that mercy seat. Well, what is it? Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? That big box that all the, the, the Israel was carrying around in the, in the desert for 40 years? Anybody remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, I was a little kid. I saw that movie when they opened it and everyone's faces melted, scared the tar out of me. <laughs> but on the top of that box are these angels and they're angels with their wings stretched forward. There's one on this side and one on that side. In the middle was the mercy seat. Well, what happened on the mercy seat? They brought the animal up, they killed the animal and they took the blood and they poured it on the mercy seat. They're covering the mercy seat in the blood of the sacrifice. What's in the ark? You know, the law, the laws in the ark. You're right. The Ten Commandments that the people broke over and over and over again. What does that mean? It means the blood of Jesus covers our sin. You know what that also means? That means the only place that God in heaven will come and meet with sinful people is at the mercy seat. The only place that God will meet with people is at the propitiation. Who's that? It's Jesus. You know what that means? Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. There's not this way and some other way. Jesus is the only way. Listen to how Paul says it to a young pastor named Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mercy seat. That is how prisoners free. Jesus Jesus satisfied the very demands of God's holy law. He, by his act, brought freedom by paying the price for the slaves with his own blood. And so now... God the Father to declare sinful men and women justified. And it's all summed into that one word. And that one word is grace. You know what that means? That means if someone thinks that they're saved by keeping the law, they're wrong. If somebody thinks they come to God by meditation, they are wrong. If somebody thinks they come to God by some ritual, some act, being a good person, they are wrong. God made the only way to him, and it is through the propitiation of his son. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. You know what that means? That Jesus paid the price for you. But here's the deal. There's only one clincher. You ready for the clincher? Here's it. You have to receive it. That's it. Oh, pastor, that's too good to be true. I didn't make the rules. God made the rules. But he's given us a gift in his son, and you have to receive the gift. P.T. Forsyth, a theologian from way back, he said, Christianity is not a sacrifice we make, but a sacrifice we trust. John Stott said, grace is God loving, God stooping. I love that. God stooped for us. God stooping. God coming to rescue. God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. Unless you accept God's forgiveness, you're still guilty. That means you're not forgiven. You have guilt. You will still stand condemned. Well, how do I get rid of the guilt? Come to Jesus. And when you do, God will say, I can declare you just as if you never sinned. I'm going to treat you like a child of God because 
You're covered. The price was paid in my son, and now you can be a child of God. And you're justified. You're redeemed. And it happens at the mercy seat. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. The Bible says whoever calls in the name, they will be saved. You must receive this gift. You must call on Jesus to save you. It happens like this. Dear God, I'm a sinner. But what you did for me on that cross, you covered my sins in your blood. I want to trust in that and that alone. Save me, I give you my life. I pray this in Jesus' holy, perfect, precious name. Amen.